Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mana Ministry. We're excited to have yet another episode. And here we're beginning our truth prescription of today. And we're going to be sharing exactly what the title is a little bit later. But before we officially begin, let me introduce myself. My name is Chriselle Olasaran. And I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. And joining me, hosting along with me, is my sister. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katie Elson. I am a clinical psychologist. Thank you for introducing yourself, Katie. So as we said, our current series is on Truth Prescriptions, which is a new mental health series. This is currently, I believe, our fifth, is that correct, Katie, episode? No, seventh. Seventh? Oh, my I am way off. Well, by two. <laughs> this is our seventh episode. And so if you've been joining us for the past six, thank you so much. We do ask that you continue to support our ministry. And by doing so, you can go and subscribe, follow, or share with a friend. We have an Instagram page in which you can see our updates with our announcements and the postings of our upcoming episodes. And also prior to this mental health series, we did have a series in regards to relationships. We went in through the different phases of a relationship, singlehood, relationship, marriage, and parenthood, I believe we even went to. So if you want to watch those videos, if they may be helpful, you can go to our YouTube channel and just type in Mana Ministry and you should be able to find our videos there. Don't forget to subscribe and follow. And we do would like just to share a disclaimer, which we share in every episode. We just want to remind you that our intention for this series is not to substitute any treatment. We do recognize that we are talking about mental health topics, but this is not treatment in itself, nor is it advice or a diagnosis. We do encourage you to go ahead and seek the advice of a mental health professional or any other qualified health provider if you have any questions regarding the subject matter that we're talking about or any particular mental health condition. Yes, and we do hope that these, the series and these episodes are helpful, right? But we want to make sure that you're connected with additional help and support that you need. If you are in a crisis, which requires an additional help to that, we do um, just advise you to contact um, your local doctor or 911 or any particular emergency contact. Uh, if you're having suicidal thoughts, you can call the number you see there on the screen. Um, and this one's particularly helpful because you can talk to a skilled and, and trained counselor at a crisis center, um, and it's open, available at any time. If you're located outside of the U.S., of course, call your local emergency line immediately. So that is our disclaimer. And before we officially begin, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. Dear God in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to pause from the busyness of this world and to take a moment to, to learn more about the guidance that you have for us in the Bible, Lord, in regards to our mental, our mental well-being. Life can get really busy and chaotic and stressful. And so we do ask that this moment help us to put away all stress and to be able to focus and be able to pick up the message, Lord, that you want for us at this at this time. I pray that you be with Katie and I as the host for this episode. Guide us, Lord, in all understanding. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to have this series, Lord, Truth Prescriptions. Thank you for providing the ultimate truth in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Katie, just take a chill pill. <laughs> How often have you heard that, Katie? 
Well, not too often in the exact way, right? But in different versions, whether Mm -hmm. take a chill pill or just relax, which can be aggravating, Mm -hmm. chill out, right? There's a lot of different versions, but basically people who are, when you're a little frustrated or anxious or kind of um, on edge, people giving you this advice of just, just relax, take a chill pill. Let's take a chill pill. I know that I have used that terminology in the past and it can be very it can be very invalidating when someone says just take a chill pill it's like what you don't know what I'm going through I'm going through a lot right and it's like it's easier said than done for you right and now so (laughs) what was that now we're using it you're saying that it's invalidating and your two therapists are are using take a chill pill yes but can you share with us what's the purpose behind our title for today's episode so I won't give it all away because um, we'll first do the icebreaker question, but it does have to do with some of the main interventions that we'll talk about that are ideal for managing anxiety. So last week we focused, well, last episode, we focused a little bit more on depression. And so we thought, of course, we need to focus on anxiety and what are certain behaviors that can help with managing anxiety. So it has something to do with chill. Not necessarily just telling ourselves to chill. It's not an off switch, but there are things that we can do to manage anxiety. Yes. And just a reminder, if this is the first episode that you've been watching, just to give you some context, we have gone through three P's or we're going through three P's in terms of truth prescriptions. First, we talked about the prescriber, which is the best prescriber, the best therapist ever is found in the word. We talked about how to find a therapist. And so if you're curious to know about that, feel free to go back and watch our videos. And now we're currently in prescription. God as our prescriber. Yes, God as our prescriber. And now we're currently in the prescription area, right, Katie? Yes. And then we'll eventually get into the patient. And so we have been focusing with the approach of CBT, a triangle, with one corner thoughts, another behaviors and actions, the other one emotions and feelings. And now we're currently still on behaviors. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that's just to give you some context. Yes. Well, we're going to start with our icebreaker question. And we know that a lot of you who are watching uh, watch after the fact. So um, we still encourage you that we still like to hear your responses. So if you are watching at a later time, still feel free to comment and let us know what your thoughts are on the following icebreaker question. So the question is very similar to last episode, but now focused on anxiety. What do you believe is one of the most effective behaviors in reducing anxiety? And as Chriselle just mentioned, she mentioned that we there's different components to managing our mood and thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, but we're focusing on behaviors. So what do you think we can do um, with our behaviors to manage the emotion of anxiety? One of the most effective behaviors in reducing anxiety. And you know, this is not necessarily a question for you to think, oh, what do I know based on research? It could even be a response of what has been most effective for you. Exactly. And we'd love to hear because it's, it's nice to be able to brainstorm together and to uplift each other and know exactly what's been helpful for others. And so as a therapist, uh, I will not respond based on what I know, because I teach this obviously, (laughs) but I will go back into high school before I was even a therapist. And now that I reflect back on the ways that I coped with anxiety, um, I know that I had a lot of, not a lot of, but I struggle sometimes with test anxiety. I would just overthink it, overthink it. 
And I would get home and be so stressed. And the best way that I would, I mean, reduce my anxiety was playing the piano. Um, and the reason why is I noticed that as I was playing the piano, my mind would not be thinking so much on the stress, on the anxiety, but just on allowing the melody to flow through my fingers. And I felt a release of tension. I, I mean, at the moment, I wasn't obviously aware of what I was doing, but I found that to be the most effective for me to reduce anxiety back in high school. It's a good response. And maybe, maybe just a little taste of what's to come for today's episode. <laughs> yeah. Hello for you, Katie. I'm trying to think of kind of free therapists, right? Because as you start learning these skills as a student, then you start incorporating them, adopting them on your, mm -hmm. for yourself. Um, I guess for me, it's always been through sports and physical activity, which I think I mentioned for depression as well. Um, but my, I just naturally have a lot of muscle tension uh, when I'm stressed. Um, and I think especially as a therapist, you do a lot of sitting, right? Sitting at your desk, um, sitting and talking with your client. And so um, I have so much energy built up and then a lot of tension. So any sort of physical activity really helps release that, whether it's the actual exertion, um, as well as the stretching and kind of the recovery afterwards. Mm. So definitely um, one of the ones that I use the most in addition to, or it's not a healthy behavior, sugar. <laughs> sugar, <laughs> you said? Ice cream. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So we encourage you to, to send in your responses. And we look forward to hearing and brainstorming. And I, I also do this with my clients in group therapy, because when you hear different, different skills, some which we'll cover, some which we will not, we can kind of be like, oh, wow, I've never tried that. And I want to try it. And it can really work um, for you. I had a client who liked to hula hoop. And that was her form of exercise as well as a, a stress reliever. So finding creative ways to manage mm -hmm. your But before we continue, we always like to review our truth prescription from our last episode. And so just as a reminder, again, we focused on depression and lifestyle and how certain behaviors um, such as sleep, right, diet, water, light, and so forth can really impact um, our depression. And well, good sleep and good diet and so forth can lessen our depression. So we talked about a story in the Bible, Elijah. And we learned a lot. I really, really enjoyed that study. Mm -hmm. I had never seen the Bible in such a practical light before. And I thought it was so helpful to see both the vulnerability factors of what made him vulnerable to depression and then God's prescription specifically for Elijah and his depression. So our truth prescriptions, Chrisal, were, were what in regards to that biblical case study? Yes, it was to reflect on what are your vulnerability risk factors and to address and prevent them. So that was number one. Number two was to engage in at least one behavior identified in the story, healthy behavior. And number three, to refocus from fear to faith. Mm -hmm. And so we like to review our previous truth prescriptions to see if anyone likes to share um, whether or not they engaged in the truth application, the truth prescription, and if it was proven to be helpful for them. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so the thing about this is 
you know, as with clients, Chriselle, we typically, right, ask them, we do check-ins and we ask them about how your homework was. But in this sense, we don't really know. And so it's really much on you, right, to be able to take these two prescriptions and to incorporate them. And I hope that you have, um, you have motivation and encouragement to do these things because they are helpful, not just for Elijah, but for many, many people. All right. So take a chill pill. <laughs> yes, we're going to start our episode today. Take a chill pill. And we're going to be talking about what exactly is anxiety because there's a huge misunderstanding of what exactly is anxiety. We'll talk about um, different components of anxiety and then skills to specifically address those components. And I'll just say there's going to be some that are conventional, some that you may have heard of before, but we still want to emphasize them because they are very, very important. And then there are some that you may have not thought of that are also very important and we'll see that are highlighted in God's truth, God's word. And so let's start with the, the basics, Crystal. Let's talk about, well, what exactly is anxiety? Okay. And before we define anxiety in itself, um, I think we should talk a little bit about the difference between stress and anxiety, right? Maybe this was more of a discussion I might have asked even before I said what I just said. Is there a difference between stress and anxiety? What do you think most people would say? Or what would you say maybe before you actually learn about stress and anxiety? Um, what would I have said? Uh, I, I don't know, actually, because I have been so already indoctrinated by, based on my education. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, could, I can reflect on what my patients have said. Um, uh, some people have said that anxiety is the exaggerated form of stress. Um, I've heard patients say that they're one and the same mm-hmm. and that they'll say, oh, I'm stressed out. But they actually find themselves saying, oh, I'm just so anxious all the time. Yeah. Like they, they flip those. Um, yeah. So I definitely think that it's important to be able to differentiate the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say most times I've heard it used interchangeably. Oh, I'm so stressed. I'm anxious. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I would say for most people, and if you're watching, you want to comment on whether or not you also view it that way. Most people view it as the same, right? We use it interchangeably, but it's important to recognize the difference. So, Let's talk about the differences for a second. And here we see on the left, um, with the underneath the bear there, um, it's the definition of stress and different kind of qualifiers of stress. And then on the right there, um, we see anxiety. So let's go through each bullet point and just talk about the differences of, between stress and anxiety. So, Chriselle, what is stress? So stress, I think the biggest difference is recognizing that it's a response to something that's external. Um, and Katie's going to share how it's the, the complete opposite when it comes to anxiety. So it's something that's external. Um, it typically is a type of change, a demand, or a threat okay. that's external. Um, it's acute versus being chronic on anxiety. Um, it's after the stressor is resolved. And then it's a normal aspect of life. It's something that all of us experience. We can't avoid stress. It's part of life. So what are um, some examples of stress? Uh, stress could be um, 
having a presentation that you have to do and you're stressed because you want to make sure you get a straight A, you want to make sure that you do a good job. Um, I mean, the external cause would be the presentation mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and your response would be the stress. Yes. And so we see that that's a demand. So I think that's an excellent example. So any sort of deadline, right? Um, it's acute in the sense of after you complete the presentation, right? Your stress would go down. Yeah, it's like, and it's oh. only one the way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely uh, external cause. And the reason why we have a bear here is if a, you saw a bear, right? You would have stress. It's an external cause. But the moment that the bear leaves, right? The stress would be reduced. Now, in regards to anxiety, anxiety is response to an internal cause. So this is where you have a feel, feeling of fear, worry, right? That's, um, it can be kind of this rumination. It can be excessive worry. So, for example, with the bear, yes, the bear may have left. But you, if you're starting to think, no, I think the bear is going to come back. The bear is just around the corner, right? You now took an external cause and you internalized it. Mm-hmm. even though the stress is gone. Mm-hmm. And this is often chronic, right? It persists after the stressor has passed. So let's say if you're starting to think, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to fail the presentation. And then, you know, let's say you do the presentation. Oh, it was horrible. And, I'm, and if I fail the presentation, then I'm going to fail the class, right? It's taking that external cause and internalizing it, um, in a way that's very, very harmful chronically. And we'll talk exactly how it's harmful also for the body. And you notice here on the bottom, it says it, it's often excessive and impairs life. Mm-hmm. So it's not a normal aspect of life. It's something that we take a normal aspect of life. Stress is common to us all, but then it's kind of an exaggerated, right, response. Mm-hmm. Excessive and it definitely does impair life. Yeah, I like to share with my patients, it's similar to the bear illustration, but of a fish in the sea, a shark is approaching the fish. And the fish is like, Oh, no, it's a shark. But the moment the shark goes away, the fish is fine, because the stressor has been, it disappeared. But whereas anxiety would be the little fish stays right there in the same place in the water, the shark is going to come the shark is going to come the shark, the, the fish doesn't go out looking for food. And eventually the fish, I mean, could eventually die. But it affects your life to the extent that it clouds your judgment and you're just there super anxious, worrying that this shark is going to come back when there's no reason to be, to be anxious. Exactly. What's so interesting about this is that the Bible also illustrates the difference between stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So just to take a quick look at some verses, um, Chriselle, do you have a preference on which one you want to read or, or cover or do you want to do all three? Um, well, we can do all three. Um, and we can talk about how it pertains to the fact that stress is normal. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no trouble has overtaken you that is not common to man. So essentially, all of us go through, through trials, all of us go through trouble. And it's something that is normal. It's part of life. First mm-hmm. yeah. Peter 4.12 then says, beloved, right? Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So a trial being any sort of trouble, right? As though some strange thing happened unto you. And I like the language here because it's when a stressor comes and you're like, oh, we're perplexed about it. It's like, you know, it's not strange. We all deal with stress. We all deal with trials. 
First Peter 5, 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So once again, reiterating the fact that trouble, sufferings, struggles in life are all common to all of us. And it's important to emphasize that and recognize that because I think sometimes we can fall into the temptation of saying, why? Why do I have this? Oh, I, I, you know, I was blaming yourself or, or having personalization, thinking that you've done something wrong to have this stress in your life versus just accepting it and then doing something about it. And either the extreme of blaming yourself blaming others or blaming God, right? And it's an extreme because what we've read in these verses is stress is normal. It happens to everyone. Yeah. And I tell people that often when they're saying, you know, I worked in palliative care with terminally ill patients and why me, why me? And it's a valid question when you're suffering so much. And I would often say, well, why not you? If you really look at the world, everyone is suffering in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And there's in Dr. Victor Frankel's uh, book on making um, man's search for meaning, he talks about how suffering or uh, trouble or stress, you, it, you can't compare. So it's like a, he gives the analogy of gas. When you release gas into a room, it evenly distributes. No matter how much gas you put into that room, how big the room, each person, no matter what the suffering is, experiences it in a, in a way that is impactful for them. So you can't compare. Everyone endures stress. But what about anxiety? What does the Bible have to say about anxiety? Does it say, oh yeah, that's normal. It's okay to be anxious as well? No, it doesn't. Good first word. <laughs> the first verse, Philippians nothing. chapter four, verse six says, be anxious for nothing. There's no exception there for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, be made known to God. And I love that verse because it doesn't just say, don't be anxious, like take a chill pill. Just mm -hmm. No, there's a response here of what to do behaviorally to, in response to anxiety, which is to have prayer, which is a behavior, supplication, and thanksgiving. It's another behavior that can also be a part of a thought process as well. And we notice here, it's not like the other verses that were like, it's normal, it's okay, it's like be anxious for nothing. There's no reason to be anxious. Matthew 6, 34 says, do not worry. And I like it says, don't worry about tomorrow, right? For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I use this with clients a lot, even if they're not Christian or view Bible as a source of truth. And I say, you know, there's a proverb that says, you know, each day has enough trouble of its own. And they go, it's so true, right? Why do I take the anxiety of tomorrow, place it on the anxiety of today and have double the load? And then tomorrow what happens is it may not turn out the way that you were worried about it. And so then you have to deal with extra worry. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Yes. And then here we have a last verse, Psalms 42, 11 and 43, 5. Why are you depressed, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So it's saying, why are you in that way? We have a comment here. Yes, um, I was just about to say that. Okay. You, you want to read it? Sure. It says here, so anxiety is like taking a flight. And before even checking in, you fear that the plane will crash. For me, every time I take a flight, I pray. And once I am on board, I peacefully sleep if I'm not reading. 
Yes, it's about worrying about something that there's nothing there to worry about. It's an internal fear. There's nothing external triggering it. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that there's nothing there to worry about, right? There could there could be an external that gets, you know, translated into an internal. internal. There's always a reason why we're anxious, mm-hmm. but it's what happens often is that internal becomes excess of fear that can be crippling and paralyzing and can also become chronic, right? Mm. Stress is normal. Anxiety, on the other hand, is something that we need to manage and we need to reduce, right? We can't prevent stress because stress is normal, but we can manage and prevent anxiety. And that will be our focus of today's episode of what can I do to manage anxiety? Crystal, do you mind reading for us the um, the definition of anxiety. Yes, and so here is the definition of anxiety. Anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes that increase blood pressure. So people with anxiety disorders usually have reoccurring intrusive thoughts or concerns. They may avoid certain situations out of worry. They may also have physical symptoms such as sweating, trembling, dizziness, or a rapid heartbeat. Yes. And so the blood pressure is an example of how of physical changes. Mm-hmm. And so we notice that there are different components there in that definition. So you mentioned feelings, you mentioned thoughts, thoughts and the physical behavioral aspect, right? The physical aspect. And because in future episodes, we'll focus more on how to deal with our thoughts Remember, we're still on the topic of behavior. So we're going to focus in on skills, behavioral skills that we can engage in to address the physical component of anxiety. So some of the things you mentioned, Crystal, you want to mention them again? You mentioned blood pressure, sweating. Yes, blood pressure, sweating, trembling, dizziness, uh, rapid heartbeat, also shortness of breath is another one also experienced with anxiety. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're going to jump into that a little bit more. Of, so we know the general definition of anxiety, but what exactly happens in the body? Right? So here uh, we thought it'd just be easier visually of how to see the different, what, what happens to our nervous system um, when we are anxious. So we see here the two um, different kind of subsystems of the nervous system, right? We see the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. Um, so, Crystal, what, what are these two systems? So, the parasympathetic is when we're calm. There's nothing that's triggered any stress or anxiety in us. Whereas the sympathetic is when something has provoked stress and anxiety in us. And so we see what happens compared to the parasympathetic when we're calm, and then what happens when it's activated in the sympathetic. Yeah. Right. So if you think about it right now, I don't know about you, Chriselle, but for myself, I'm in the parasympathetic. I, I feel pretty relaxed, right? Um, if I kind of tune into my heart rate for a second, pretty relaxed. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm breathing fairly normal. Right? Um, now, when I think about, I remember one time I was sitting, waiting for an interview and my heart was like, I just felt it. And I could even feel my blood really pumping. And I engaged in a behavior that we'll talk about later. 
And I can notice my heart rate slowly, um, slow, slowing down. And so I could see when my body is in parasympathetic versus sympathetic. Mm. And so for people, it's good to first kind of the first step is just recognizing when is my body in parasympathetic versus sympathetic. Now, Katie, can you share a little bit about like how sometimes individuals may say, well, I, I don't have any reason to be anxious and my body is responding in the sympathetic where I'm having digestion problems. I'm having accelerated heartbeat at random moments in the day, but there was nothing to trigger it. So how is that anxiety? You heard patients say that? Oh, a lot, a mm -hmm. lot. And, and a lot of them will say out of the blue, just mm -hmm. out of the blue. It can't and be. I, I mean, nothing has triggered it. And I explained to them that our body is so wonderfully made that it's never out of the blue. It may seem like it's out of the blue, mm -hmm. but what happens is what we see here on the right, somatic symptoms, basically what happens when we internalize anxiety, right? And we try to mute anxiety, we ignore it. Our body basically is trying to communicate to us something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it starts um, reacting in a way of these symptoms. So let's go through some of these um, symptoms. So we'll go through what happens in the body and then how that translates to certain symptoms. And so I'd encourage those who are watching to think about when are times in which you've experienced these symptoms um, and again, how your body is communicating to you that you're anxious. Um, so what we see is with the sympathetic um, nervous system, um, you're your pupils begin to dilate, right? And what do you think is the function? I, I love to tell people anxiety is not necessarily bad in the sense of it serves a function and purpose to deal with the stressor in the moment. Um, so what's the function crystal of our pupils dilating? Focusing. If that, if that bear is right in front of me, rawr, my pupils dilate and I get a, a closer perspective. It's kind of like when I'm taking a picture and I want to zoom in. <laughs> that's kind of what I imagine is happening. So that's very adaptive, right? When there's a stressor in your body's like, hello, danger, danger. Mm -hmm. It's great to be hyper-focused. And so then we see the second here. So after the pupils dilating, we see here our saliva, the production yeah, of our saliva is inhibited. Mm -hmm. And I'll just um, join that with down here where um, we see with the stomach and um, it's also inhibited. So the digestion system is inhibited as well as, well, if you think about the saliva is linked to the digestive system. Why do you think the digestive system is being inhibited? What functionality does that have? What functionality in terms of why, what would make our stomach all of a sudden go through diarrhea or a loss of appetite? So not necessarily the somatic symptoms um, yet, but just the idea, why do you think our body reacts in a way of inhibiting our digestive system. I feel like it's like a shutdown, like there's danger. And so your body's like, <gasps> shut down. Um, it, it, yeah, I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah, so it shuts down in a way of saying, well, I don't need to be focusing my energy on digesting things, right? So I'm going to turn off those systems. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to start focusing my energy on things that are needed. So if you look at these different um, functions or these different um, symptoms, the things that need to be hyper aware and, and focused and alert are turned on like, you know, volume 10. And then the other ones are muted because it's like, okay, I don't need a digestion right now. 
It's like your heart. Exactly. Your heart increases its heartbeat in order to push and flow the flow of blood more because there's perceived danger. And so it's to be able to activate and to engage in a response to that perceived danger. Exactly. So the heart rate starts increasing, right? Because it's pumping more and more blood and not just blood to anywhere, it's blood to the vital organs and blood to especially the muscle, right? So I, my, my muscles need to be prepared to either fight, right? This, this system is also called the fight or flight or free system. Mm-hmm. You can fight or flee. I need that energy, that extra energy. And what's not on here is that adrenaline, right? Is being released. Yeah. Um, cortisol is being released and other hormones through the well, axis in a way to prepare us for fight or flight. And then in terms of the lungs, where it says dilates bronchi, it would be have to do with, you know, typically when people have anxiety or even panic attacks, they, you know, like, and it's kind of like your body's way of trying to get in more oxygen. Um, but at the same time, you're inhibiting the oxygen. It's interesting. We're going to talk about a little bit about the impact of breathing appropriately when you're experiencing anxiety. Exactly. When people say I'm hyperventilating, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of shallow chest breath. Mm-hmm. What else do we see here, Crystal? So inhibition of our bladder in terms of contraction. You can have um, UTIs, which is pretty incredible. It, I just think it's amazing how God made our body. Uh, God made our body to speak to us, to tell us when there is danger. But sometimes when we don't manage it well, it starts to be prolonged and turn into anxiety. And we start having somatic um, symptoms. But even when we have somatic symptoms, it's telling us that we have internalized something and we need to address it. Uh, and there's so many times where patients have gone to doctors, they believe that they're going to have a heart attack, they go to the emergency room, the doctor does all of the, the heart exam, EKG, everything, nothing is found. And so the next referral is to see a mental health professional. And so if you're experiencing these things, it's not like, oh, no, I'm never going to be able to overcome them. No, it's just be thankful that God designed you in a way to be able to say, alert, alert, something's happening. But then the question is, are you going to go about trying to figure out what's happening? Yes. And um, just to add on to that is this is a good alarm system, right? What's the, the problem is not with the alarm system. The problem is that we've trained the alarm system to react to things that are not actually dangerous. dangerous. So when there's a bear, you want this to be well activated, right? But a lot of times we've now translated a conversation with our partner as a bear, as danger. I know a person. Like, what was that? Or a person. Sometimes just to be among certain individuals, you perceive them as danger mm-hmm. and they elicit anxiety in you. And so Go ahead. I was going to say, it, sometimes it's not something external as in an object, but it could even be a person. That's why I said a partner, your partner. Mm-hmm. It could be um, flying, as somebody mentioned earlier. We we live in a society that we have been, um, we have activated our alarm system to go off for many, many, many things. Mm-hmm. So I tell people, I give this analogy, you know, sometimes we have fire alarms, right, that start beeping. Right, you don't take out the fire alarm and say, "Oh, this is beeping. Uh, this is annoying." So annoying. Okay. No, we recognize. Oh, it needs to be recalibrated. It has its purpose. So what we have to do is we have to recalibrate. One that we mentioned, we did not mention on here, 
is you see here when it talks about the conversion of glycogen to glucose. And so if you think about glucose being sugar, right, energy, essentially, um, for our body to be able to, to fight um, or to flee. What people, a lot of people describe though, especially when they have panic attacks, is after they have extreme fatigue because it's this drastic mm -hmm. energy release. This is also why anxiety and stress is very, very harmful for individuals who suffer from diabetes because you're constantly having this release of extra glucose or a conversion of glucose um, that can be yeah, harmful for those who suffer with diabetes. So we see here heart um, palpitations, chest tightness or chest pain, um, breathlessness, uh, nausea, constipation, a lot of issues with your GI system, irritable bowel syndrome is very commonly linked to anxiety. Um, energy, muscle tension, restlessness can include also shakiness, right? Um, and then even incontinence and other issues. Yeah, and there's some other things that are not also listed here in terms of fertility. Um, when we don't manage our stress, it turns into prolonged anxiety. It can also affect your fertility. Um, it can also affect your sex drive for those who are married and it can affect your sex drive. Also, it affects your mind as well. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that later in a different episode in regards to the mind and the body. But um, oftentimes when people have anxiety, they say that they just can't think straight, like, or they don't, they don't remember <laughs> why they did what they did in the moment that they were anxious. <laughs> so it affects your concentration and your level of judgment. So we see a lot of physical, right? Physical changes in the body. Mm -hmm. And so again, we talked about in a few, in a future episode, we'll talk about how to do with the thoughts, the cognitive aspect of anxiety, the excessive worry, the rumination, the separation, et cetera. But this episode, we're focusing on the behaviors we can do to be able to address these somatic symptoms. Mm -hmm. So Chriselle, what is a um, kind of an acronym that might be easier for our listeners and our viewers to be able to remember when they're anxious. And I like acronyms because when we're anxious and we're in this full blown, right, activated sympathetic nervous system, we're not being, oh, okay, let me just calm down and, and let me just chill out. Yeah. What's an acronym that we could just think of in the moment in order to begin utilizing some skills? Well, I'm about to give you a tip. That's the acronym. <laughs> tip. tip is the acronym. And so you're wondering, what does the T, the I, and the P stand for? And so Katie's going to share our next slide here. The T is essentially in regards to adjusting and changing your bodily temperature. And what can you do about that? I is engaging in intense exercise. And we're going to go into each of these. And then the P would have to do with your breathing, having paced breathing, um, otherwise recognized as deep breathing. As well as paired with muscle relaxation. So you can have oh, yes. an additional benefit of pairing pace breathing with muscle relaxation. Yes. And so this is where we're going to now talk about. So if your body is responding in this way, what can you do behaviorally? Yes, anxiety is an emotional, right? It's an emotion. But we're going to talk about the behavioral aspect of what can you do to cope with that anxiety? Exactly. And for those of you who may be familiar with different modalities of treatment, this one's specifically from DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, um, which 
a lot of the principles come out of CBT, they also focus on thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So we're going to talk more in depth about TIP and different um, research and um, ideas behind TIP. So let's talk about the first one. Yes. Temperature. So, okay, what happens in our body going back to the sympathetic um, system with our temperature when we're experiencing anxiety? Is our temperature extremely dropped or is it increased? Is it raised? What's going on with our temperature? So our temperature, right, um, if you think about anxiety or even anger, right, you can tell that the temperature is rising. And what's really interesting when they've done emotional heat maps to see where exactly the temperature is focused, you see this major concentration of heat in this area, the core area. And that's why, again, the heart um, is pumping very quickly and um, there's a lot of heat. And some people even right, get red here in the chest. I get that sometimes, like a rash, a heat rash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a, a rash, an actual, like external rash, but an internal increase of blood circulation and heat in that area. And so that can start, you know, giving us a clue into the different things that we might need to do. Also, people get a flush in the face, right? A lot of heat in the face. Here and the ears. Exactly. Um, so... One of the things, right, the first thing that people recommend is temperature, is tipping the temperature of what you can do in order to change the temperature of your body. So if the sympathetic nervous system increases your temperature, then the parasympathetic is decreased. So by doing something to decrease your temperature, you're telling your body to turn off the sympathetic and to turn on the parasympathetic. So Crystal, what are some examples that people can do practically to tip their temperature? Well, you could hold, you can put your face in a bowl of cold water, right? Mm -hmm. Holding your breath or hold a cold pack. It's kind of like when you're sick and you have high temperature and you're like, I got to change my temperature. Mm -hmm. We go, we take something cold and we put it on to help our body to drop the temperature. Essentially the same when it comes to anxiety. So you can go yeah. cold water <laughs> into your face and, and just it says to hold it for 30 seconds. So it's not just a splash, like literally it's to be able to, for your body to have a reaction to that cold water. Yes. And so one of the things I wanted to add is um, this is often known as kind of um, eliciting the diver's response, like a dive response. So when people are divers, they you know, hold their breath and they jump into cold water. Um, the diver's response, it's typically what it does. It's shown to slow down your heart rate, increase blood flow to um the essential organs and reduce blood flow to non-essential organs. So if you think about in regards to mental health, that's increasing blood flow to your brain mm -hmm. right, where it's needed. When you said like a lack of concentration and a lack of ability mm -hmm. to focus, mm -hmm. it then increases your blood circulation to your brain, mm -hmm. heart slows down, and then um, also blood flow to your heart instead of away from your heart to your muscles. So it's kind of resetting, shocking your system and resetting it in order to reduce your anxiety, turn off the sympathetic and turn on the parasympathetic. Yeah, so you can do the face or you can literally just get into your shower and do a contrast shower going from hot to cold from hot to cold. Okay, uh, on average, how much time do you spend in the cold? How much time do you spend in the hot? Yeah, so typically what's recommended, and, um, and again, this is kind of a general recommendation, but you start with warm water, 
Um, and of course, what every cycle that you do, you increase the temperature of the hot and decrease of the cold. Um, but you start with warm water. Typically, you say, you know, I'm not going to tell you the temperatures because people are going to be hyper focused on the temperature and all <laughs> anxious about the temperature. But yeah. generally, as, as you know, warm and what you can tolerate, mm -hmm. about two to three minutes, right? And then you switch to cold. And again, some people are like, oh, I don't want to do this because they try to go extreme cold. No, just what you can tolerate for about 30 seconds. You go back to warm and now you, you increase the warm a little bit more. Now you can tolerate more because your body is basically um, getting used to acclimating to the temperatures. Then you go back to the cold, a little bit colder than before, 30 seconds. And then the last one is about one to three minutes for the warm or the hot. And then you end with the cold and you always want to make sure to end with the cold because the warm water, the hot water basically opens the pores, right? And so cold water closes and then you want to rest afterwards. Some people, you don't want to do extraneous activity, but I want to talk briefly about kind of what, what contrast showers do. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the main impact of contrast showers, and you'll notice that these different skills have a lot to do with these same principles of how it impacts our body. It increases circulation. Mm -hmm. So again, kind of similar to the diver's response, um, it can, if you think about with the sympathetic nervous system, taking blood flow away from um, to the different like muscle groups instead to the essential organs, it helps increase circulation throughout the body. And what's really important is with increased circulation, it's also increased um, flow of nutrients that the rest of your body needs. When you're stressed, your body is shutting down in a way that um, is survival mode. When survival mode, is, it's not helpful to be in that mode all the time. And so your blood circulates more um, and it takes blood and nutrients to your heart and brain, which is of, of most importance, right? And Contrast showers not only increase blood flow and nutrients, um, the delivery of nutrients, but it also releases toxins. It helps eliminate toxins. And if you think about when your body's uh, under stress or anxiety, you're having an increase of stress hormones. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, what else does it do, Griselle? Well, I think it's interesting um, that it helps balance the feel-good brain chemical, chemical, which is serotonin. Um, it, that's pretty powerful to be able to have an impact on your, the chemical um, balance of your brain as well. And also interesting here that research has shown that it can be as or more effective than certain psychopharmacological drugs. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. And I think sometimes automatically when we have anxiety, we want to go and take medication and think that that's going to remedy everything. But there are other things you could do as well. I'm not saying to replace your medication, et cetera. But there are other things you can try to see if it will help as well with anxiety. And one other thing that, you know, this is often talked about in regards to physical health, but it does in, impact our mental health as well. It boosts our immune system. So the different types of kind of white blood cells or, you know, natural killer cells that are important to help fight, right, diseases in our body. Depression, anxiety, those are diseases, right, that they do impact our body in a physical way. And so it boosts our immune system and can help us, right? Um, it also increases energy, increases alertness, and that can also help with depression, not just with anxiety as well. Cold exposure increases your blood levels of endorphins. 
and neuroadrenaline as well to the brain. Endorphins have the pain relieving effect, lowering your perception of discomfort. The stimulating effect of endorphins also boosts your feelings of well-being. Pretty empowered. That's pretty powerful. I always tell people to uh, a side effect, a, a beneficial side effect of conscious showers is distress tolerance. Right? <sighs> you learn also to have the self-control because it's not easy. But I will tell you, the first time I did contrast, well, I, I didn't do contrast showers. Another version of this is hydrotherapy. If you have the ability to do the full immersion of a hot tub and, and a cold tank, I did it and I've never slept so well in my life before. Like it is wonderful. Um, I do do contrast showers and um, those are helpful, but <laughs> if you have the opportunity, then we uh, recommend doing contrast, like hydro or contrast. Mm-hmm. But let's continue because we still have a lot to cover. Um, the I stands for what, Crystal? Intense exercise. <laughs> now, why does it specify intense exercises? Because sometimes individuals, they go and they exercise, meaning they have a walk or anything, but the intense exercise is where we actually see the benefits of the exercise, right? So the latest research shows from the University of Missouri in Columbia that high-intensity exercise is the best way to go. For what reasons? A, you know, you expend the energy that's built up from that stress response, right? All in your body and everything. And so you're able to release that. If you're not doing an intense workout, that's not really released. Um, You release muscle tension that's built up when you have anxiety. Uh, You have a change of temperature, right? Um, Let's see here. You have also an increase in dopamine, serotonin, and no, I can't pronounce that one. I have no trouble. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. I got to no learn this. No epinephrine. <laughs> <laughs> so it does several different things in terms of engaging in intense exercise. Okay. Can you give us like an examples of what would be intense exercise? Yeah. So I tell people, you know, you want to do your regular exercise as prevention. Mm-hmm. This is when your body is in sympathetic, right, nervous system. When that's activated, you want to engage in extra intense exercise because your body is revved up. It's ready to fight or flight. But like, let's say in real life, in, in, when it's adaptive, you might actually run from that danger. But we don't run. We stay with our anxiety. And so our body needs to release that. Mm-hmm. So intense exercise can really be any form of exercise that's intense for you, right? So it can be even doing jumping jacks, you know, up and down, up and down um, in one place. It could be running, but more like sprinting instead of a light jog, right? They say that if, you know, the different levels of exercise, you can tell like if you're able to sing, right? You're able to sing an exercise. Or hold a conversation. Right, there's the different levels. There's the sing, there's yeah. the, the conversation. If you're panting and not able to talk, that's a little bit more intense, right? <laughs> you notice that it's... A, it's a shorter amount of time. So intense exercise should not be for long periods of time. It's about 20 minutes that, that they recommend. And it's just a way, again, this is not daily. It's moderate typically, but when you do are in the sympathetic and you need to regulate your emotions in that moment, do the intense exercise. And one of the things I just want to comment with regards to changing the temperature, um, which we notice is, again, kind of the where the where the title comes from, of take a chill pill, mm. you notice that a lot of these things have to do with um, changing your temperature, chilling your temperature. 
And so what's fascinating about intense exercise or even exercise in general, um, it's called the thermogenic hypothesis that there's increase in temperature of specific brain regions, especially in the brain system that results in overall relaxation and reduction in muscular tension, mm. right? Which is a huge component of the sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, we have a comment here from a viewer saying intense exercise plus consistency. Many people go and they give up after the first session or the first day. So discipline is key. It is. Yeah. And I've heard many people say, oh, when I'm stressed out, I just got to go to the gym and just release that stress. And they recognize the benefit. Now, let's continue. Um, pace breathing. So P stands for pace breathing with paired muscle relaxation. So, Chriselle, what exactly is pace breathing, also known as deep breathing, diaphragmatic <laughs> breathing, so forth, or belly breathing? Well, it's not the breathing I was just doing. Um, sometimes when people say, take a deep breath, what's the first thing they do? Their shoulders. Right? Deep breaths. <gasps> well, that is not deep breathing. We do not breathe deeply with our shoulders. Um, let me see here. Uh, when we see a child lay down on their crib, I say this because of my daughter, and we're worried, are they still breathing? What's the first thing we check? Their okay. shoulders? No. Their belly, right? That it goes up and down. It's because the deep breathing involves a diaphragm and the diaphragm is also used when we sing as well and we'll talk about that a little bit later but it's like this balloon that we have that's right between our rib cage so if you put your finger there and you do a deep breathing of pushing it out and in that is where deep breathing occurs sometimes it's called di diaphragmatic breathing as well but katie can you walk us we're going to actually do this together so you may be watching this later take a moment to find your diaphragm, put your hand on your belly, and Katie's gonna guide us through a practicing of deep breathing. I'm just gonna put my, my camera a bit lower, but so your diaphragm, so you find your belly button, just place your hand above it, is a band of muscles, uh, muscles that, um, it's a muscle that is right underneath the lower parts of your lungs. And what it does is that muscle pushes out your lower lungs so that the air goes deeper into your lungs. And what's fascinating about that is there's more blood flow here than up here. Mm -hmm. And so it's helping regulate the blood flow again. So place your hands here. You want to be comfortable and relaxed and tense, right? You want to breathe slowly in through your nose. You notice it's not slowly in through your nose and your hands, this hand, not the top hand should be moving. Okay. And then you want to hold it, pinch it at the top for one or two seconds. And then slowly out through your mouth with pursed lips. As if blowing through a straw. Into your nose. Hold it out through your mouth. Some people ask, oh, you know, how many seconds for each breath? There are some that say four and seven, and what I typically recommend to people because each person has a different pace mm -hmm. is when you start, it's going to be harder. The more that you practice, it'll become slower and slower. So just try to slow it down as much as possible. Don't focus so much on the count. As slow as you can do, slowly out. And basically what that starts doing is it starts regulating to balance out the oxygen levels and the carbon dioxide levels um, that are often imbalanced when it comes to when we're anxious and we're hyperventilating. 
Yes. And so I personally have used deep breathing when I go to bed. Um, and the reason why is because sometimes my mind just goes through the day and then I start to get stressed based on, oh, tomorrow I have to do this. And so a way to get my mind refocused and to allow my, my body to calm down, I do deep breathing and it definitely helps. It really does when you do it appropriately. So deep breathing is awesome. But what are the benefits, right? What does research say? Is Katie and Christelle just saying this? No, there's a lot of research when it comes to deep breathing. Um, it says it increases the supply of oxygen, as Katie mentioned, to your brain and nutrient delivery because you draw air down to the deepest pockets, as Katie was saying, where the greatest amount of blood flow occurs. And this stimulates the parasympathetic, which is the, this part of the central nervous system that keeps you calm. It also increases your body's production of endorphins, which we like, right? It reduces your blood pressure and it slows down your heart rate. And overall, it improves your health. It also helps reduce muscle tension and it improves digestion. So all of the different somatic symptoms that we basically saw, right, are being reversed, right? You're turning off the sympathetic and turning on this, the parasympathetic. parasympathetic. I, I like to tell people, you're basically in a physical way through these different components, telling your body, you're okay, you're not in danger. If you were to, your body were to speak, it'd be speaking, it'd be saying that, but through deep breathing, through the temperature and so forth. Mm. So I'm okay, right? The bear's not there anymore, I'm okay. Um, and it can even impact your mental energy and concentration and focus. I'll just say quickly, some people say, oh, I feel really lightheaded when I first start. That's often because maybe you're not used to it. And so the imbalance of the oxygen and the carbon dioxide is a little off. But what's really important is to practice the pace breathing when you're not anxious. Yes. So when you practice it, and remember, the, the diaphragm is a muscle. So if you practice, that muscle strengthens. And so what I notice people when they practice when they're not anxious, when they are anxious, it turns on more quickly. Okay, parasympathetic is on. Sympathetic, off. Mm -hmm. The first time they're like, oh, it took me like 15 minutes to finally feel relaxed. That's normal. But then the more that they did it, then they're like, oh, three breaths and I already feel calm. So the more that you do it, you're not anxious, you can be able to um, have a, more, a quicker response when you do need it. Yes. And so if you want further instruction, um, there's actually an app that I think both Katie and I, we recommend to our patients, which is breathe number two, relax. And there it has um, audio and visual of how to breathe deeply. You can adjust your inhale and exhale time, and it can even track your breathing, how it improves. Yeah. So breathe to relax. Yes. And, you know, when we're doing our research, there's another, um, I would say, pioneer who actually wrote about deep breathing mm -hmm. way before many researchers. Um, her name is Ellen White. She's a very well-known uh, female author, um, one that has books on many different topics and even very good books on mental health, mind, character, personality, as well as Ministry of Healing, talks about healing in general. But what I found so fascinating is um, she mentions a couple of things about the benefits of deep breathing. Priscilla, do you want to read um, some of those points for us? Yeah, she says here in the Ministry of Healing, chapter 20 specifically, in order to have good blood flow, 
we must breathe well, full, deep inspirations of pure air, which fill the lungs with oxygen, purifying the blood. They impart it to a bright color and send, and send it a life-giving current to every part of the body. A good respiration soothes the nerves. It stimulates the appetites. Remember we talked about how it can affect digestion and renders digestion more perfect. And it induces sound, refreshing sleep. So mm -hmm. everything that research has proven now, she had mentioned years before in regards to deep breathing. And she says here, the lungs should be allowed the greatest freedom possible. Their capacity is developed by free action. It diminishes if they are cramped and compressed. So we want to be able to expand our lungs, allowing it to breathe appropriately. She even talks about the, the importance of posture. So even when you're sitting at your desk, if you're hunching over, you're not naturally engaging in deep breath. You're, you're inhibiting the lungs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, just a couple of other comments. She says, you know, when you do begin to do um, deep breaths, says the skin becomes, um, uh, no, when you don't do, the skin becomes sallow, digestion is retarded, the heart is depressed, the brain is clouded, the thoughts are confused. So again, of the depression, anxiety, gloom mm -hmm. settles upon the spirits, the whole system becomes depressed and inactive and susceptible to disease. And so it's really important to engage in deep breathing so that you can have a sufficient supply of oxygen to the most vital organs, the brain and also the, the heart, but really throughout the, the whole entire system. And what's so fascinating about this um, is that she's a writer. She, I mean, she was in the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s writing these things mm -hmm. um, out deep breathing way before we caught on um, in the fields of mental health. Yes. And she says at the end here that it's important for us to practice it, that it should be a habit that we establish. So this is not just to be, a, oh, okay, I'm going to do it here and there, a habit that we regularly engage in. And a habit is something that's almost instinctual, right? You do it. So I know myself, I'm, I need to do a lot more of it. <laughs> when I was mentioning in, that I was in an interview, I did deep breathing. And immediately, so there's this technique called um, biofeedback, in which you're actually hooked to a system that you can see your heart rate and you can monitor basically your sympathetic nervous system. Mm. And what it teaches you is that you have control over your body. And I want to just kind of pause there for a second, because a lot of times when you're anxious, we feel like the anxiety is in control and we have no control whatsoever. But the a main point of this episode is to recognize there's a very um, significant physical component to anxiety that you do have control over. We are able, it's kind of like a remote, right? We can turn off and turn on. It's, we can chill, take a chill pill by engaging in these things. And so not just pace breathing, but the, the next one that's the same P is paired with muscle relaxation. So pace breathing is helpful, but when we pair it with muscle relaxation, we see a larger benefit. So what exactly is muscle relaxation? Well, we know that when we experiencing anxiety, as we mentioned earlier, we have tension in our muscles. And what's interesting is sometimes we don't even realize that the tension is there. After engaging in the exercise that we're going to describe here in regards to progressive muscle relaxation, all of a sudden you realize, oh, now I see the difference when I tense up my muscles and then, then I release that tension. That's what it feels like to be relaxed. I haven't even noticed it. Uh, a lot of people carry tension headaches. 
and they they don't really know what's going on, but they feel a lot of tension in their head. Um, has a lot to do with anxiety. So muscle relaxation, the body responds to stress with muscle tension, as I mentioned, which can cause pain or discomfort. In turn, tense muscles relate to the body that it's stressed. So it's a, it's a reciprocal type of interaction there that keeps the cycle of stress and the muscle tension going and going and going. So what progressive muscle relaxation does, it helps break the cycle by reducing the muscle tension and general mental anxiety. So Katie, can you give us some brief examples because we're not gonna go through every muscle group, but <laughs> what are some brief examples that we can engage in to help us manage our anxiety? Yeah, so typically with clients, I'll, we'll do a head to toe, mm -hmm. all the muscle groups, right? Because you really wanna make sure you're releasing all the muscle tension. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of time, right, we will um, only do a couple muscle groups. So some of the ones that I've recognized um, people carry most of their tension, the, the number one, uh, the first one is one that I'm guilty of. I carry a lot of tension in my forehead. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways that you can tense this area. And so just briefly, all muscle groups, um, you'll go one by one, and you want to against Start with deep breathing to relax. And then you tense the muscle group, what's typically recommended about five seconds. And we just want to say quickly, if you are experiencing any chronic pain or if you have any other physical complaints in those muscle groups, to be mindful of that, right? And to either completely avoid that muscle group or to tense with caution. But if you don't, then we recommend to tense for five seconds. And tense, we mean like, Tense. <laughs> Another key skill or tip is you need to release immediately. So people start going like this, but you're teaching your body the difference between tension and relaxation. So you need, you need to, to see the contrast. To see the contrast, exactly. And again, to increase blood flow. Mm -hmm. So with the, the forehead, you can either do it one or two ways or do both of them. You can either raise your eyebrows and hold it for five seconds. I hope no one's taking a screenshot of us right now. <laughs> and then immediately relax. Okay. It's so also important to breathe. Breathe in before you tense your muscle and breathe out as you release the tension. Exactly. Um, another way to do that is then to frown, to tense it the other way. Well, we do not look attractive. <laughs> <laughs> and then you release. So that's something that with another place is your jaw. You can either clench down your teeth or smile widely. You can also grab your lips. Different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then release. Mm -hmm. And then one of the ones that's most impacted by stress and anxiety are your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so the way to do this one is to lift up as if you're trying to reach your shoulders to your ears and tense it tightly for five seconds, oh, I can feel I have a lot of tension. And then immediately. Oh. And sometimes what I've noticed oh. myself uh -huh. is it still holds a little bit more, so I might do it again. I do it again, yeah. I felt the same for myself. I then relax. Okay. Better feels better the second time around. You might have to do it several times. Sometimes I'll do an extra stretch, right? Because I can feel it. And then you continue and you can do it with your back muscles. You can do it with your biceps, right? Tensing. I'm not trying to flex on camera here. With your um, toes. Your toes. Another common one is your hands. 
do this really tightly for five seconds and release your stomach as well, where you just tighten your ab, your abs, your abdominal muscles and, and then release it. You can do different muscle groups and release that muscle function. But we're going to continue because we have two other main ones. So that's tip temperature, intense exercise, pace breathing and paired muscle relaxation. But Crystal, there are two kind of less conventional tips or skills that we want to provide with people. Uh, one I think is not thought of as a skill, something that we just engage in in general, but how is it specifically a skill? So we're talking about music. So yes, the next one is music. Um, I don't know if you guys have realized that when you listen to music, there is a bodily response to it. Um, I know for myself, if I listen to music that has certain beats to it, or it's rapid, and the melody is a certain way, it can increase my heart rate. Um, this might seem exaggerated to you, but it happens to me, I can start sweating. Mm -hmm. um, there's some music that is just very unpleasant for me to listen to. Mm -hmm. And is it because that's my personal taste? No, there's is actually research that proves that the, the music that we listen to, the rate of the rhythm, and even the way that it's ordered in terms of the melody, right, Katie, mm -hmm. affects our body and even our <laughs> sympathetic nervous system. Right, Katie? Yeah. So if you think about it, depending on what type of music you listen to, you can actually be activating the sympathetic, right? Increasing heart rate, the sweating, the, um, all the different symptoms we described, or you could be having healthy music that can actually then induce the parasympathetic nervous system. And what we don't recognize is that music is a, one of the most powerful stimulus there is. Mm. Um, I, in my in grad school for my very first class, my very first project was on music and the brain. And it was just so fascinating how literally the, that music stimulates every different part of the brain. So if you think about it, it could, um, you know, it could uh, trigger or it could, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, stimulate the brainstem, right? It can, um, if you think about in regards to the rhythm, um, it can also stimulate the hippocampus if it's related to any sort of emotional memory or memories. Um, you, it can uh, stimulate the motor cortex, right? If you think about tapping them to music and, or playing music. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of different components of our brain. And then even if you're performing music, then you're utilizing a lot of the frontal lobe, right? For planning and organization. But what's really when they look at um, when they look at what music is helpful for mental health and what music actually increases serotonin levels and lowers heart rate, our the music um, basically synchronizes or um, syncs with our heart rate, and so the best type of music is actually slower songs, mm -hmm. and not just slower songs because if our heart rate syncs the song, right? We want a slower heart rate, especially when we're anxious. Um, but it's also when you mentioned, Christelle, when music is ordered. What do you mean by ordered music or how is that beneficial? So let's see. Um, I, I can read here, but for example, music that has a certain flow to it versus having, like if I were to show it visually, like boom, 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 that wouldn't necessarily be an ordered music. 
um, I don't know how to describe it. We, I mean, I could just read what we have here written in terms of the music. This order includes repetition and changes, um, certain patterns of rhythm. So the order there is the, the repetition, the pattern, right? Um, and then pitch and mood contrasts. Uh, one particular music that has this element is classical music. And there's a reason why they say when you're pregnant and you want to have your child listen to music, the best music is classical music. It helps improve the brain of the child. So they say, right. Um, I have noticed that when I put classical music on for my daughter, she calms down and she's very into it versus other music. She's just like, woo. So it, yeah, it is true that classical music is one of the best types of music to listen to for the way that it's orderly. Yeah, and, and so the order of music from the Baroque um, and classical periods are the ones to be found as most beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, and like you mentioned, Chriselle, the repetition, the patterns of rhythm. Um, but what's interesting is if you look at kind of modern day music, right? Mm -hmm. Modern day music is not ordered. There's not the right balance of rhythm and melody, right? Um, and so our, our brain likes order. Our, our, our body is ordered. And so it's, it synchronizes to that in a way that um, is beneficial to our whole entire system. Um, classical music affects the brain's organization and abilities through its melody and rhythm. The rhythm raises the level of serotonin produced in our brain. And I know some people are like, well, I don't really like classical music. And just a quick little testimony for myself, like I like different types of music and your taste changes, right? When you start um, basically enjoying less, like what you look at all the drugs and other things, it's like a lot of stimulation versus what is beneficial for us is actually less stimulation, more like less dopamine hits and more kind of slower releases of serotonin, dopamine, and the other things that we need in moderate amounts. We have a comment from a viewer says that is right. Upbeat music can trigger aggressive driving. Anyone can guess which music I listen to while I am in my long driving. Hopefully calm, slow music. So you're not aggressively driving, increasing the chance of getting in a car accident. <laughs> I think that's, you know, a little obvious that people even say like, oh, you know, I get adrenaline when I'm listening to certain types of music, right? And again, for anxiety and for mood, What's best is we don't want the adrenaline, we don't want the cortisol, we don't want the sympathetic, we want the parasympathetic. So we want a balance, um, a balance in our, in our physiology. Hmm. Um, we see this in the Bible, right, Purcell? Mm -hmm. What is an example of this in the Bible? An example of this is found in 1 Samuel. Let's see, I'm using a different Bible here today. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 14 through 21. We're not going to read the, the whole thing, right? But maybe just kind of um, give us a, a synopsis and then highlight certain words or verses for us. So we see here in chapter 16, verses 14 to 23. Um, at this point in time, here's Saul. And Saul is considered the king of Israel right before David is anointed to be king. And Saul has, as it says in verse 14, a spirit of the Lord departs from him. And then a, a distressing spirit comes and replaces that. And that troubles him. So he's troubled. His mood is affected. He's being troubled mentally. So some what happens that he has, some people believe that he has bipolar. 
So if you look at the different symptoms and kind of the mood fluctuations, not just in this chapter, but throughout his, the later years of his reign, um, definite highs and lows and um, mm. a lot of fluctuations in mood as you, as you described. So he's having this distressing spirit and people are like, well, what do we do? How can we go about to help him cope with this distressing spirit? So someone suggests, hey, you know, I know of a skillful man who can come and play the harp for you and play some music for you. Some and classical. so they, what was that? Some classical music. Some classical music, yes. And it says specifically, a man who is a skillful player in the harp and it shall be that he will play it and his hand with his hand and when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, you shall be well. So they're recognizing here in these verses that your mood is not good. You have a distressing spirit, anxiety, say. And if we come and have music that come and with the harp, which is calm music, orderly music, that distressing spirit will go away and you will feel better. You will feel well in terms of your mood. So even here, these individuals are recognizing the power of, of music. Yes, and, and just as a, uh, to clarify, some of you may read this on your own and study it on your own, and it says, distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Um, so just a quick comment on this so that you're not confused. Mm -hmm. uh, at this time, um, they didn't have a, a very good understanding of the difference between good and evil, right? Between God and Satan, the enemy. So they thought all things came from God. So here you see in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and then God sent him, like, why would God, you know, leave and come back with a distressing spirit? So, and then they didn't understand much about mental health. And so a lot of people believe that this is mood fluctuations, anxiety. Um, and so, and then another comment, it says, and you shall be well in verse 16. Well means joyful. Mm. So not only will you not be troubled, but you'll be joyful that this music can have a mood altering, right, experience to better your mood. And verse 23 says, and so it was whenever the spirit, right, that distress of anxiety was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, again, refreshed and joyful. And the distressing spirit or the anxiety would depart from him. So we see a clear example of how music, the research says it, but the Bible already said it, how music and classical music can impact our mood for the better. So is it just music, Katie, or is there something that we can add on to music to have even more of a benefit? Kind of like, it's not just deep breathing that's beneficial, but when you pair that with, you know, muscle relaxation, then you have an increased benefit. So what, is there something else that can be even better than just listening to music? Yes the power of singing. What is fascinating about this is I was trying to look up the different research articles and there's not as much research as I would have expected. If you look at how much it's emphasized in the Bible compared to how much it's in research, the Bible talks about it again and again and again and again. And so just to highlight some of the things that research has, although the Bible already talks about it, um, the benefits of singing um, a lot of them have to do already with some of the benefits we already mentioned. So if you think about singing, it has the music component to it, right? And so all the benefits we mentioned about music, but then singing also incorporates deep breathing. Wait, what? A lot of people don't recognize that. Mm. When singers are able to hold a really long note, it's because they have a very strong diaphragm. And I remember, Crystal, you were taking um, singing lessons, and I remember you, watching you, 
and they gave you some homework and you had to take home um, this certain thing and practice it daily. What was this homework? It was a balloon. <laughs> I had to blow the balloon. I had to keep my hand here under my, on my diaphragm, push out the balloon and then pull it back my diaphragm. But I had to also learn how to control my diaphragm. So I couldn't blow the balloon like this. I had to slowly learn to control the air that passed from my diaphragm up to my, into my, my air passageway, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it's incredible that when you know how to manage your diaphragm, when you're singing, you're able to have better control of your voice and to hold your notes. Um, there are many singers that hold their, their notes incredible because their diaphragm, they know how to release that air slowly versus just they have more control of their muscle. Yeah, because the muscle is stronger. And so singing has the benefit of music, but also deep breathing. So just to name a few things, it reduces the stress response. It turns off the sympathetic, turns on the parasympathetic, reduces cortisol levels, adrenaline, all those different um, hormones that we mentioned. It stimulates the immune response. So similar to, you mentioned about uh, contrast showers and other things that boost our immune system, right? Um, even gives us antibodies to fight infections. Wait, what? Singing? Yeah, singing. Um, what I also found fascinating, similar to deep breathing and increasing endorphins, singing also increases endorphins, which means you have a higher pain tolerance. So a lot of people who have depression and anxiety might also suffer from chronic pain. Because um, I know you work with chronic pain patients and you do group therapy with them. You might start uh, sessions now with singing. Right. <laughs> yes, we do use music. We haven't done singing quite, but we do no. emphasize on music. But that's a good idea. It increases oxygenation of the blood. Um, it also enhances memory. So you see a lot of music therapy and singing with um, patients who suffer from dementia. It helps with grief and overall mood. And the most common research studies are actually done on group singing. And what's fascinating is as we talked about music, our heart rate rate sinks through the music. And so that's why it's better to have slower music. When you, when you sink as a group, your heart rates all sink not only to the music, but to one another. That's amazing. So it increases social connection, which is, we talked about last episode, the importance of not isolating, but having social connection. Mm -hmm. And this is not to kind of advertise for church or, or um, you know, uh, yeah, church specifically, but we see that as a very common element of church services, right? To sing together. A lot of people talked about how COVID, and for me too, what was hard was, yeah, you get a service at home, but the singing together, I miss it, right? Because there's nothing like singing together that elevates the mood. And one other thing I, I really want to mention, because some of you might be thinking, oh, I suck at singing. The benefits in research have been shown to be also um, uh, produced in those who don't sing well. It's just the efforts of singing. So you don't have to sing well. You And even for those who are listening, right? Because you think, oh, oh, please no. <laughs> well, still, it would unify them and it would mm -hmm. still be beneficial for the group as a whole. So singing is powerful. So Crystal, what are some Bible verses um, that back this up or, or even highlight different aspects of when should we sing, how we should mm -hmm. sing, and so forth. 
So singing can occur in different circumstances in life, right? So in terms of singing during good times, the Bible talks about that in Psalms chapter 13, verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalms 108.1, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, I will sing praises even with my soul. So singing in good times. But what about other times? Right? Most of us sing. In good times. In good times, right? Oh, actually, when you're humming and singing, that means, oh, you know, are you in love or is something going well for you, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't often talk about other times. Yes. You want to go straight into the other times? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have here, there are other times to sing, which the Bible talks about. Sing to encourage each other, which is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Um, and it says, don't just sing sometimes, but sing all the time in the morning, in the evening, all the time in the morning, specifically the Bible says in Psalms 59, 16, but as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes. I shall sing joyfully of your loving kindness in the morning. And I think that's wonderful because oftentimes when we wake up, Mm. our, your mindset is set for the day. So yes, there's prayer to be able to connect with God, but also to sing of worship and praise in your heart, to have that, I say that, that mood change to be joyful in your heart and to carry that on throughout the day. Most people, they, they recommend, oh, say a positive affirmation because typically people wake up on Wednesday. Like, oh, today's Wednesday. Today's going to be a great day. But it's much more powerful to sing in the morning. Mm-hmm. So sing all the time. Psalms 104, 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. So throughout my life, I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. So as long as I live, I will sing to God. Now, as Katie was saying earlier, you know, okay, so we have that motivation to sing when we're happy because we have that energy. But sometimes when we're, when we're in a depressed mood or we're anxious, we're not in the mood to sing. We're like, I don't want to sing. Like, I'm just stressed out. Like, how am I going to stop to actually sing? Well, the Bible talks about the importance of singing in bad times. Katie, where is that found? So we see in 2 Chronicles 29. I'm going to just read this verse quickly and then we'll focus our attention on a different verse. 2 Corinthians Corinthians, Chronicles Chronicles. 29.30 says, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites, commanded them to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and the sophisteer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads in worship. And you're like, what, what does this have to do? The original, actually, it's better read in this way. They sang praises until there was rejoicing. So it's this idea that you sing until you feel better. Keep on singing. It may not be good time, but keep on singing. But the one that I want to highlight is actually in the New Testament. So if you go to Acts chapter 16. I remember learning this um, as a, a child and just, wow, right? You know, why? I don't know if I would be like them in that circumstance, but Acts chapter 16, and this is a, a, a longer story, but we don't have time to go into all the details. But basically, um, there are two men, um, Christians, who are serving God, and Paul and Silas are their names. And what happens, we see, let's see here. Um, in verse 19, they, they get into this dilemma and it says that they're seized and dragged into the marketplace and they start getting beat. 
So they, in verse 22, they tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rocks. Is this a good experience for self? No. Not at all, right? Mm -hmm. Is this a happy time? Not at all. Mm -hmm. 23, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison. So it's just getting worse. Not only are they naked, which is embarrassing, they're beaten with many, many stripes, and they're in prison, and it tells the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stock. So then they're chained in the prison. Now, what would you expect after this? From an, If this was me, if this was you, if this was you know, people that are watching, they might be like, oh, what's to follow is complaining, right? God, I'm serving you. God, like, you know, why, why is this happening? Why me, right? We talked about that earlier. And what we see here, verse 25. So do you want to read that for us? Yes, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And it's interesting the time of day at midnight when they would have all the reason to be asleep, but they're praising and they're singing to God. That's incredible. Really bad times. Mm -hmm. They're not humming and singing because things are going well. Mm -hmm. And they're not just praying. Most of us as Christians, we think, okay, I got to pray. God deliver me. No, they're praying and singing. They're praising God, right? Singing hymns to God. And the key detail there, the prisoners were listening. What happens after this is because of their singing. Verse 26 says, suddenly there was a great earthquake. God heard their singing. You know, the foundations were shaken of the prison. All the doors were open and every chain was loose. God delivered them. And not only them, but because a result of their singing, the the guard, the prison guard actually um, asked, right? Oh, what must I do to be saved? And he and his household are also baptized and saved. So as a result of their bad experiences, but their praising, right? Not only did it help them and elevate their mood, but it helped others also um, to to not just have a temporary mood change, but a long-term eternal mood change. Awesome. Incredible. I don't think I've... I don't think we've realized just the power of not just music, but engaging and singing Mm -hmm. and not in just good times, but in bad times. What a powerful song. And so if you're watching this and you yourself are struggling with any anxiety, just encourage you to remember that this is not the time to be shameful. This is not the time to hide in the corner, but this is a time to sing, to sing and to be to allow God to, to utilize your singing, to, make a difference in not only your life, but in the lives around you, just as Paul and Silas, that a whole family was converted. I think sometimes the enemy likes to hide us and discourage us. But remember that all stress, all troubles, all suffering is common to all men. And so let's go ahead, Katie, and let's pray. Or do you want to share our truth prescription before we end? Let's pray, then we can. Okay. Can you guide us in prayer, Katie, please? Dearly Father God, we just thank you for the reminder to sing when the waves are crashing around us or when we're discouraged and dismayed and when we're like Paul and Silas in trouble and in the, the depths of the dark prisons of our own lives, God, often we're imprisoned by 
anxiety and by depression and by ourselves. And so Lord, I just pray that the same way that you broke those chains and you released them from that prison by them singing, that we ourselves can also sing and give praise to you and um, so that our chains can be broken, the chains of anxiety, depression, and all of our different difficulties, God. Help us to implement these skills, um, both to manage our anxiety, but also, Lord, to be able to trust in you more and to draw closer to you and to draw others also closer to you. So please be with us in these next two weeks and be with our truth description as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here is your truth prescription for the next two weeks until we have our next episode. Number one, prevention. Engage in deep breathing and singing daily. If you want to take this song, I know this song will permeate in my mind <laughs> probably for throughout the rest of this week and into the next week. But utilize singing. Sing in the morning. Sing all day long and see the difference that it makes in your mood. And number two, engage in tip when anxious in distress. God wants to hear you sing. Yeah. So just as a, a reminder, prevention, right? But if you are anxious, tip is a great thing to engage in in the moment. So we encourage you um, to don't forget to take your daily dosage of the truth because, Crystal, the truth will set you free. See you all in two weeks. Bye, everyone. And don't forget to subscribe, follow, and to share with a friend. We never know who could be benefiting from these videos. See you all in two weeks. Take care. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.